Welcome to The Big Interview with Dan Rather, the podcast that delves deep into the heart of music through the words of the artists themselves. This is your backstage pass to intimate conversations with legends and icons from across the music world, as guided by none other than the legendary Dan Rather. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from rock and roll to country, from pop to alternative. We cover it all right here on The Big Interview with Dan Rather. So sit back, relax, and prepare to immerse yourself in the stories, the struggles, the triumphs, and the tunes that have shaped our musical landscape. Here's your host, Dan Rather. On this edition of The Big Interview, the incomparable Rod Stewart. Where is the man? Here he is, Dan. Sorry I'm late, pal. The hotel alarm went off last night at half past five. Thank you. Hey, what an honor. Oh, and an honor for me as well. Some guys have all the luck. Some guys have all the luck. But luck alone doesn't explain Rod Stewart's enviable career. In an industry as fickle as show business, Stewart continues to thrive well into his fifth decade as a performer. Stewart's soulful last adds a bluesy depth to beloved hits such as Maggie May. And that remarkably versatile voice has helped him traverse the decades. Rod Stewart is as comfortable bellowing a spirited rock tune as he is crooning a mellow jazz standard. And he's not afraid to take risks. Stewart's chameleon-like ability to adapt to various musical styles and genres has paid off. Big time. She sits alone, when Rod Stewart dabbled in disco with his frisky single, Do You Think I'm Sexy? The song shot to the top of the charts, reaching number one in multiple countries. And he hasn't slowed down since. Rod Stewart has sold countless albums and concert tickets. He's been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice. And he's now Sir Rod Stewart after being knighted in his native England. Yet, here he is, still thrilling audiences in arenas, still releasing new music, and still rocking that iconic hairdo. Rod Stewart is unstoppable. I sat down with him in New York the morning after his sold-out show at Madison Square Garden. Thank you for being here. Appreciate you taking time to do it. My pleasure. Know you had a big night in the garden last night. You played the garden many times before. My question is, who's your audience? Who's your basic audience? You, you cut across all age groups, all genres, but basically, who's in that crowd? As you said, you know, it's anybody from 18 up to 60... Um, it hasn't always been that way, but in the last 10 years it has. Mm-hmm. And 
it's an honour, you know, to, to still have fans that saw me in the gardens in 1971, you know, that are still there, bless them. Well, not only are you a megastar icon legend absolutely super rock star <laughs> absolutely. and an ambassador to music but you're a survivor yeah and i think there are a lot of people in our audience who'd love to hear what the key to your survival has been you not only have survived you've thrived for more than five decades in yeah. a very tough business what's been the key well without sounding um without blowing my own trumpet the physical side of it i work out a lot because i do get through a lot of action on the stage so I'm not one of the guys that just stands there singing a dance jump kick footballs out uh, that is down because I work out a lot I always have done because you know I used to play soccer I nearly became a professional soccer football player right so uh, it's uh, and the audience give you so much adrenaline too there'll be some nights where I go oh just this is just one gig too many and then you get that pump of adrenaline that gets you through the show. It's obvious you were blessed with an extraordinary voice. But Some may disagree. <laughs> no, no, I don't know anybody <laughs> disagree. But you've pressed that voice, and I'm interested to know how you've kept your voice. Because many people, with all respect, you know, I'm 86, so I can talk about age. At your age and stage, their voice can't do what it would do 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. But you're not in that category. Um, I've been doing it a long time. You know, it's not like, you know, I just won uh, American Idol or something and I've been thrown in the deep end. I did my apprenticeship all the way through the 60s. So, but you're right, you know, the, the voice, you know, I don't, I, there's some high notes that I can't, and I'll be honest with you, there's some high notes that I can't quite get anymore. But, you know, that's to be expected. It's like, it's like... Uh, an athlete that's just lost a couple of yards. But on the business, you were saying, and I appreciate your candor, that there are some notes, some high notes now that you can't quite reach. Is that a case of being on a regular basis? Or, as my father was fond, fond of saying, is it a case of I'm not as good as I once was, but for once I'm as good as I ever was? Oh, that's great. <laughs> that is, oh, bless your dear old dad. Yeah, that's, that's about where it is. <laughs> That is extraordinary, Dan. That's brilliant. You have to write that one down for me. Um, in our business, you know, you can, um, like, for instance, Maggie May, I don't sing. I always had a very high voice. You know, it's up there when I was right. in, the, in the 70s. So what we've done, we sometimes, on a few songs, not many, we lower the, the, the key to a half a step. Right. So it's, it's, I suppose you could say it's cheating, but... No. No, I don't think so. Sir Rod Stewart doesn't cheat. No, no, no. Well, let's talk about uh, your new album, Blood Red Roses. I notice, how could I not notice, that Didn't I, the first single to be released out of it, really popped up on the charts. Mm. Even with all you've accomplished, got to feel pretty good. Yeah, it does. It really does. You know, I, I make albums now because I've had tremendous success over the years. Um, and I would never complain if I failed because I've had it. You know, but to have this little sweet bit of success in the charts now is just, it's fabulous at my age. And it's, it's a pretty controversial subject as well. And it, it actually was my least favourite song on the new album. You said a controversial subject. Let's let our viewers in on what that subject is. Well, it's about, um, and how I write these songs, I do not know. They just come out of the air. But uh, 
it's it's about parents that are worried about their teenage kids, and I've had a, a little bit of that problem in my with my own kids, only a little bit, and it is scary, you know. Now I know this might sound odd coming from a rock star, but I was never really uh, never really into drugs very much, and I think the song is registering with people that have teenagers that are getting into drugs. Well, by the time this gets on the air, Grace will also have been released. What's the story on Grace? Oh, I didn't write it. It's about it's it's the most tragic love song I've ever ever I was going to say written ever recorded. It's about um, Grace Gifford and Joseph Plunkett. He was one of the leaders in the 1916 Easter uprising in Dublin, right. and uh, he before he was executed, he asked for permission to marry Grace. And they were given 15 minutes under armed supervision by the English, and they got married. He was taken out five hours later and shot. It is the most beautiful song I've ever written. I've written, sorry, I've ever recorded. When we come back, Rod relives his childhood dreams of going pro in something other than music. When the big interview with Dan Rather continues. Let's find out how our musical world would have been different if Rod Stewart went pro in something other than music. My love for you is immeasurable. Rod Stewart was born at the tail end of World War II, the youngest of five children. European football was a frequent talking point in the Stewart household, and Rod was particularly skilled at the game. Though he gave up on his dream of becoming a professional player long ago, he continues to kick the ball around. That's my workout. Rod Stewart remains a massive supporter of Glasgow's Celtic Football Club, and he's passing down his love of the game to his kids. You're Scottish, right? Do you consider yourself more British than Scottish? Uh, wow, that's a great question. You know, Dan, I was born in London. I have a Scottish father, and both of my brothers, we feel very, very close to Scotland. I would say it's my, it's my spiritual home. Um, no, I feel British. I'm very proud of being British. Well, there is that sort of uh, big brother mentality with the Scots and the English and the Irish and the English, <laughs> and it's only when it comes to sport the, all the, I, I say, the smaller countries <laughs> like to be big, be the big brother, which is England. Well, you mentioned earlier, and it's a matter of record, that you could have been a very successful soccer player. In your heart of hearts, would you have rather reached where you have superstardom as a performer and a songwriter, or would you have preferred to be a World Cup soccer player? No, I... To be really honest, I don't think I was good enough. Um, my two brothers both played, and my dad wanted one of us to be a professional, and I was the last one in line, and I wanted to keep him happy, God bless him. Um, but now, by that time, when I was about 18, I'd, I'd fallen into music, and that's the way I wanted to go. But honestly, I wasn't good enough. Could you mend it like Beckham? Uh, you know, David's a mate of mine. I, I think I can. I know how to do it. <laughs> do you still play any at all? Uh, not competitively, no. I play, you know, I have an AstroTurf pitch at my house in England and I take the boys out there. All my four boys play football. 
Well, tell me about growing up in London. You pointed out your Scottish descent, but you were born in London. Yeah. You were born in London in 1945. Yeah. The war is just coming to an end. Tell me what life was like. Well, obviously I don't remember, because I was born just at the end, the tail end of the war. But I remember the stories that um, my brothers and my sisters used to tell me, and my mum and dad. And it was, they were very harrowing. Although we lived on the outskirts of London, in the suburbs, my dad always said, he said, the, the moment you were born, because I was born at home, not in a hospital, he said a bomb dropped on Highgate Police Station and it blew the police station up. I don't know what significance there is in that. <laughs> but the stories were just unbelievable. You know, that's why when I do a song called Rhythm of My Heart, I always dedicated to those that have paid the ultimate sacrifice with their lives and given us our freedom. You know, I noticed that you, you, have, you wear a cross. Yeah. Was your family particularly religious when you were coming up? Did you, did you consider yourself religious? Do you consider yourself religious? I'm of the school where the religion, and I try to explain this to my kids because they do not go to church, and I don't go to church. Um, but I think religion in this modern day and age is something that's in us. Something, I always say to my kids, be good and do good. That is a religion in itself. That's what I believe. Be good and do good. Well, you know, I have read, and I'm looking for confirmation, true or untrue, that your father was always supportive of you, always made it clear he believed in you. As a result of that, did you ever have a rebellion against him, as boys, boy men often do? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. He... Um you know, when I became a beatnik, you remember what beatniks were, right? Yes, I do. Yeah, Jack Kerouac and all that <laughs> stuff. When I was really scruffy and I grew my hair long, he was always trying to say, come on, lad, you know, you know, straighten yourself up, get a real job. And, but never that I felt like I, I had to run away or something. You know, it's never... I loved him dearly. He was not a man of many words, but I loved him. We outconnected. Great connection was through football. Me and my dad could talk, and so it is now with, with kids. We could talk hours and hours and hours just about football, as I do with my sons. And your mum, what was she like? She was stoic, I suppose. She was uh, not interested in football. <laughs> and she used to, because my brothers played, we all played in teams. Football was such a huge thing in the Stuart household that my mum once said, Football has caused more arguments in the Stuart household than Hitler. <laughs> Rod Stewart has come a long way from the London train platform where he was discovered by fellow rocker Long John Baldry. It was Baldry who introduced him to the spectacular underground rock scene of the 1960s, where Rod Stewart would gain prominence singing in two of the UK's most influential bands, the Jeff Beck Group and later The Faces. When did you first get on to music? Oh, uh, my dad, bless him, bought me a guitar for no apparent reason when I was about uh, 12, I think. And he said, son, there's money in this. And I remember I had to walk 
about a mile to get it tuned up because the only guy I knew lived a mile away that could tune it. And when I got home, it was out of tune again. Nevertheless, I, I powered forward, learnt, taught myself guitar, and then started playing and suddenly realised people loved me playing uh, old American folk songs. You know, and they'd say, Rod, play that one by Rambling Jack Elliott or play that one by Woody Guthrie. And that was the start. And you were discovered playing the harmonica, though. Yes, I was. <laughs> now, how did that happen? Um, there was a place all the bands used to play in London in the 60s called Eel Pie Island. And uh, I used to go there and see the stones and the, the yard birds and the animals. I hadn't started. Um, and I'd catch the train home. And one night I was just sat on the station with a big overcoat playing harmonica on platform two. And on platform one was the legendary Long John Baldry. And he came over and said, why don't you join my band? You know, he said, you can play harmonica. I said, well, I, I can sing a bit as well. <laughs> so he gave me the job, uh, the, the sum of £35 a week, which was a fortune in those days. Yeah. Well, now, before you went out on your own, you fronted for one of the most influential bands of the 60s and 70s. Tell me about that era in British rock. The Jeff Beck group? Yes. Um, Jeff was a fabulous guitar player and is a fabulous guitar player. He was part of the Yardbirds. Uh, and then he formed his own band, which was uh, was consisted of me and the Rolling Stone, Ronnie Wood. <laughs> he's, he's like my soul brother. Right. And uh, that was the first time we came to America. And a good story... We played to Fillmore East, and we were supporting Grateful Dead. And I was so nervous because I was trying to sound like a black guy singing the blues. I tried to sound like Muddy Waters. And I thought, oh, my God, this is New York, and the curtain's going to open. It's going to be full of people, and they're going to say, oh, you're not the real thing. And I hid behind the amps and sang the first two songs. And then the audience went berserk, and then I came out. Yeah. True story. Well, early influences, who, who among names we might know were early influences on you? You mentioned Woody Guthrie before. Al Jolson. I used to listen to, a, I didn't listen to a lot of Al Jolson. I was forced to listen to Al Jolson because my mum and dad played, and my brothers and sisters loved Al Jolson. I remember they took me to see the movies, two movies that were made about him. <laughs> After that, it was all the great black acts. It was Muddy Waters, Sam Cooke, Otis Redding. All of those guys have influenced me. James Brown? James as well, yeah. All of them. Little Water. Well, now, I've written down a quote here that's attributed to James Brown. He said that you are, quote, the best white soul singer he knew. Now, do you take that as a compliment? Absolutely. And he's absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was, that was a wonderful compliment. Yeah, really wonderful. Being a former television anchorman, I know a few things about ego. But does your ego say, wait a minute, maybe I'm among the best soul singers, not just best white soul singer? Oh, Dan, I, I can't answer that, mate. You know, that's, that's out there somewhere. You should maybe go and ask the music critics or fans. I can't answer that one. But, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> well, what... What drew you into the sound, the soul singer sound? What drew you into that? Oh, wow. Um, well, let's put it this way. I never wanted to sound like Pat Boone. You know, I never wanted to. I wanted to sound like Little Richard. I wanted that dirtiness, you know. And, and growing up in the 60s in England, all the guys thought this, you know. Uh, I'm sure the Stones, 
the animals, Elton, we all felt we were all influenced by black culture and black music. And, you know, it's, 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 it's got us through bad times. It really has. You know, we never wanted to sound like, I don't know, white groups. How did your relationship with Elton John begin? We both knew each other because we were both discovered by this wonderful gentleman, Long John Baldry, again. He discovered both of us. And um, we remained friends. When we both lived in England, we lived, you know, like half an hour, 20 minutes apart. And we used to see each other at Christmas. And, and we used to, we were good mates. We used to knock about with each other. You and the band you played with, and for that matter, you yourself, you had a reputation of being a heller. <laughs> for example, I have a note here somewhere, a bill from a Holiday Inn, a large bill saying you wrecked their rooms all over the country. Well, we we attempted to. Um, this was this was during the days with the faces, and we were treated rather badly by the Holiday Inns. So we took our revenge on, you know, removing all the furniture from the room and put it in the elevator and sending it down. Uh, we did a little bit of damage. Nothing I'm proud of, but it does make me smile. But the best story is they banned the faces. Right, we weren't very well known. But then we'd check in as Fleetwood Mac, because they weren't particularly well-known, so they didn't know we were still checking into Holiday Inns as Fleetwood Mac. But did you have a drink problem at one time? No, not really. I, I, if there's one element I could probably curb, I've never been really a drug person. I do adore my wines. You know, and I drink three glasses a night, seven nights of the week, um, and I think it's good for me. I, I can't have, I don't know about you, Dan, I can't have a great dinner, right, with a glass of water. I have to have my wine. Well, did you ever have a drug problem, a real no, drug problem? Never, never been, never been to, uh, never been to rehab, never had a problem with it. I delved a little into it, but it used to get in the way of my playing football, you know, because I played football sometimes Saturdays and Sundays, in a competitive league, and then I would train during the week, so I never had time for that, you know. What's the most humorous thing that's happened to you? You've had all these performances on every continent, with the possible exception of Antarctica. Uh, what's the funniest thing that happened to you? Oh, man, that's a... One, I do, one thing I do remember is when I was in the faces, um, we always have to have women throwing themselves at us, you know. We, They'd be at the Holiday Inns or whatever hotel we were checking into. And uh, I went up to my room once. And I don't know if you're going to be able to broadcast this. <laughs> I went up to my room once and, uh, oh, throw me cases on the chair and locked the door and went to the small room to do some business and took my trousers down. And then behind the shower curtain, I heard a rustling and a giggling. And two girls actually got into the shower room into my room. So I went, who's in there? Pull my trousers up and there was, there was two girls. When we come back, Rod Stewart talks about his early days of rock and roll when the big interview with Dan Rather continues. The early days of rock certainly did roll and Rod Stewart was in the thick of it. Let's get back to Dan Rather's big interview with Rod Stewart. I have a quote here from Rolling Stone magazine, a review in 1980. This takes us back quite a ways. We 
which I want to quote to you, says Rolling Stone, quote, Rarely has a singer had as full and unique a talent as Rod Stewart. Rarely has anyone betrayed his talent so completely. Once the most compassionate presence in music, he has become a bilious self-parody and sells more records than ever. I suppose that's true. You know, I, I know who wrote that. That What was his name? Uh, he, he never liked me, this guy who wrote that. You know, he was always, he's always been criticised, and I think he's passed on now. But that was, I think, 1979 when I recorded Do You Think I'm Sexy? Right, 1979 and 80. Yeah, 1979-80. When I recorded Do You Think I'm Sexy, which is probably the most popular song that I've ever recorded, they thought I had left rock and roll. I was a traitor to rock and roll because I recorded a disco song. Was I jumping on the bandwagon? Yes. And what's wrong with that? Uh, was it a huge hit? Amazingly huge hit. And do people still like it? Of course they do, so fuck him. <laughs> I take your point. <laughs> and I don't blame you for one second. But, you know, one person's selling out, quote, is another person's adjusting to the time and surviving. Yeah. And frankly, looking back on it, it was very smart. I'm not saying you did it for this purpose. But disco seemed to rule the music world there for a, a, a small window yeah. in the 1970s. Yeah. And so it had been pretty foolish not to adjust with the time. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, it's... Uh, I, I must admit that part of that song, I, I did um, borrow from a big Brazilian hit. Um, so I can't take all credit for it, but uh, I'd just come back from Brazil, yeah. from the festival there, you know, and this song was on my mind. And then a few months later, I went into the studio and started singing that melody, and I wrote the lyrics. And uh, I, there was plagiarism in the first degree. But I did cough up, and all the money went to charity. Mm -hmm. So uh, I went off a tangent there. Sorry, Dan, what was the question? No, I want to get back to the question. You answered the question, which was, you adjust with the times. You can't be blamed for saying to yeah. yourself, look, yeah. disco's big. I can do that. Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. ring with it. But you mentioned you were just back from Brazil at one point. Now, you played in Brazil in Rio before what some people think is the largest crowd ever to hear somebody in live rock and roll concert. Mm. Some of the estimates say three and a half million people. Other estimates say five million people. I can't imagine performing before a crowd that large. One, did you realize the crowd was that large? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, uh, I think in the Guinness Book of Records it says 4.9. All right, all um, right. You've been to Brazil? I have. Yeah. Well, you know... Um, uh, uh, the bay, it goes all the way around the Horseshoe Bay. Right. Well, they closed off all the roads, and at every, I would say, every 100 and f 110 yards, something like that, mm -hmm. there was a monitor screen and there were speakers, and it went all the way around the beach. It was so massive. By the time I'd sung the last note of whatever song I was singing, it had just got to the people on the other side of the beach. It was extraordinary. It really was. It's one of those concerts, obviously, I'd never forget for the rest of my life. And that was what year? Uh, 93, 94, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about your look. How did the hair come about? <laughs> um, 
after I'd become a beatnik and my dad had told me to smarten up my act and start bathing, uh, I became what was known as a mod in the 60s, you know, right. and w with all the guys out there here were sort of like this, but back combed up, huge. Mm -hmm. And it came, I believe, out of France, out of Paris, where the guys were doing it there. Um, and it was really huge. We all looked like Dusty Springfield, you know. Right. So that's how it came about. And I'm so glad it's still on the top of my head to this day. You mentioned Maggie Mae earlier. Talk about what the song's about and what the process was in putting it down and creating it. Um, it's, it's a really interesting. I mean, Maggie Mae obviously turned my whole life around. It was about my first sexual encounter, which lasted about three seconds and left a, a, a stain. Um, <laughs> Maggie was a large woman that I met at a festival, jazz festival. In about what year? I would say 1964, something like that. I was and, a teenager. And how old was she? She was definitely older than me and larger than me, and it all occurred in a tent. So she was there to introduce you to the pleasures of an older woman? She was, yes. And she uh, was during the day, Dan, yeah. and she dragged me into her tent and took advantage of me, and it was all over in three seconds, as I said, and that was my... I don't know if her name was Maggie. It could have been Rosie. I don't know, yeah. but that's loosely what the song was based on. <laughs> It's break time for the big interview with Dan Rather. When we come back, Dan wraps up his interview with the amazing Rod Stewart. The big interview with Dan Rather is back to wrap up Dan's conversation with the ageless superstar, Rod Stewart. As a person, I'm not talking about as a professional, I recognize it's hard to separate Rod Stewart, the professional, from Rod Stewart, the person. But as a person, what do you consider to be your biggest strength? As a person, uh, determination. I think determination has always gotten me through since I was a little kid. You know, wasn't particularly bright at school, but I didn't miss any days at school. I didn't. I was never absent. I was willing to learn. And determination got me through. Determination got me into this music business. Determination has got me where I am today. And uh, that probably is my biggest strength. You know, I, I, I think I'm a very, I'm a very loyal friend. Uh, I'm, I think I'm a very loving husband and hopefully a, a, a good dad because I've got eight kids. So I have to be a different dad to each one of them because they're all, you know, the oldest is in her 50s and the youngest is seven. So I can't be the same dad to the seven-year-old as I can to the 25-year-old. Well, since you bring up the subject, correct me if I'm wrong, you have eight children, three marriages, mm -hmm. but eight children with five women. The question is, it's got to leave wounds. I'm talking about with yourself, never mind the children. When you go through three marriages and go through the kind of life you've had, What's the biggest wound on you? You know, 
it's it's so difficult. You know, the the one marriage that fell apart, and I, Rachel, she left me, and I didn't have the tools to deal with it because no one had ever left me. You know, I was always the one who left, and I always left in a a very abrupt way, which is something I'm not proud of at all. But uh, you know, when she left, I was hurting for six months. Um, and it's life. It happens. You know, just happens. Get on with it. But I can't think of any lasting wounds. With my kids, maybe, you know, Sean and Kimberly, because the marriage fell apart and uh, I didn't see them. I was in the, in the early nine, 1980s, I was in debt for about a million dollars. You know, I owed a million dollars. My, my accounts had been handled terribly. So I had to go out and tour and work my ass off. So they didn't see much of me. And we've talked about it. Everything's cool now. In right. fact, they're both with me today here in New York. Everything's okay now. Right. But as, as scars, no, not really. Well, in asking what your biggest strength was, what do you consider personally your biggest personal weakness, biggest regret, let's put it that way? Biggest regret? Not spending enough time with my dad when I left in 1975 to come and live in, uh, in Hollywood. And although I used to keep in contact with him, phone him up, you know, three times a week, I wish I'd have just had a little bit more time with him. Well, speaking of more time, you, in effect, bought more time because you beat cancer. Can we talk about that? What yeah. happened? What happened and how did it affect you? It was a, a routine inspection. Um, I'm very, very health conscious. I, I mean, I had blood tests five times a year. So I'm, you might call me paranoid, you know, I'm hypochondriac, but I believe in taking, making use of, of modern day medicine. Um, anyway, so I went for a medical and they found a little polyp there and, uh, and they cut it out. That's so a I was place to have it for a singer. Yeah, yeah, the worst thing you can have. It was on the thyroid, so it was just above the vocal cords. And how long did it take you to recover? Oh, forever. You know, I thought, this is it, it's all over. I couldn't speak, I could, I could not alone sing, you know, but um, because they cut you right through here. So it, it, it cuts through all the muscles, all the memory is lost uh, for singing. So it took me about seven or eight months before I could start singing again. Well, I want you to imagine with me. We're having a memorial service for Rod Stewart. <laughs> and we want to play one tune of his that he especially wants played. So at your memorial service, what one tune among others, we're going to play a lot, would you want to be played? Oh, probably um, I would have danced all night, but my wheelchair sprung a puncture. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, probably. I did hope so. There's a song on the album called Farewell on this new album, which um, is about one of my dear close friends who passed away a few years ago. Um, and I spent the 60s and 70s and the 80s with him. And it's, it's just so gorgeous. I would like that song. Farewell. So long. So long. I didn't ask you, what do you fear? I mean, as a person, what do you fear? Um, ill health, I suppose, is my, you know, as I said, I'm a bit of a hypochondriac. Um, um, 
that's about it, really. I mean, I think we're all have a certain fear in us. You know, our our age, our days are numbered, um, and we don't want it to happen too soon. And we try to look after ourselves as best we can. Um, but fear, no, I've got no fear of passing on, really. I've a big fear that Celtic may get beat today, my football team, by the champions from Greek at <laughs> 2.45, Dan. <laughs> Other than that, no fears. Well, you anticipated my question, which was going to be, do you fear death? But you said you don't really fear it. I, I suppose we all fear pain, not wanting to go through pain. Yeah. But you don't have a particular fear of death. No, I think, you know, I used to be a grave digger you know, way back when. So I was once locked. The initiation process when I was a grave digger, although I didn't dig many graves, but they do, they put you in a coffin, they close the top and put a nail in it and see if you scream. <laughs> Absolutely right, this happened to me. I don't know whether this is why, why I haven't got a fear You're putting me on. No, I'm not. I was a grave digger. Wow. I used to go and measure the plots out, yeah. you know, just for a few weeks. But that was the initiation Life was a bitter cry Rod Stewart turned to singing the classics when he was struck by a prolonged case of writer's block. Blue moon, you saw me standing alone. Throughout the 2000s, Stewart released a series of albums covering American standards rock and roll staples, and Motown hits. It was the most commercially successful decade of his career. Stewart has a gift for making old songs sound new again and making them distinctly his. Stewart's dynamic set list includes music originally performed by Sam Cooke, Tom Waits, Cat Stevens, Etta James, something deep down in my soul, said cry boy, and Van Morrison. Have I told you lately? It seems there is no song Rod Stewart can't sing. You lost your ability to write music yeah. for a while, yeah. and then you got it back. I'm interested in knowing, as you look back on it, what were the important points within yourself that allowed you to come back from this terrible surgery, yeah. come back from just losing your songwriting talent? How did you do that? Well, with the songwriting talent, I don't think it was ever lost. I think after the surgery, um, when I got my voice back, I was fortunate enough to do the American Songbook series, five albums that sold 27 million. Huge hits. Huge, yeah, yeah. So once that had finished, um, I started my autobiography. That's called Rod. It's still in the shops now. You can buy it. And uh, I said, after speaking to family and friends... I have so much to write about. And one of the first songs I wrote was a song called You Can't Stop Me Now, which I dedicated to my dad, who, as you said, 
was so behind me when I was stumbling into show business. Right. And he kept saying, son, keep at it, keep at it, you'll get there eventually. So, um, so that was the, uh, the, the turning point, was the book. And fighting your way back from the surgery? Yeah, that was painful. What was the key? Determination. You, you must have wanted to give up at some time or another. No, never even thought of it. I did think about becoming a landscape gardener at one point. I don't know why. <laughs> I thought, well, if this all goes pear-shaped, maybe I'll start a landscape company, you know, as I enjoy the outdoors. But no, the, the, the good Lord was on my side. He gave me back my voice. Let's talk again about music. I've written down, I couldn't write down every hit you've had. And by the way, let's note that when you came out with your most successful album, yeah. the American Songbook, you had been a rock and roll star, maybe up and down, but not a star for, for 30 years when that yeah. came out. Were you surprised that it did so well? Oh, absolutely, yeah. It, it, was, it was an act of love. I loved all these songs. As I said, I'd heard these growing up, and these brilliant, beautiful songs, you hear them once and they enter your brain box. So I'd always wanted to do it. I was turned down by several record companies who said, we don't see you as a crooner. We see you as a rock star, and we've got a big investment in you. You ain't going to do it. Um, until the wonderful Clive Davis came along, bless him, you know Clive, I'm sure. I do. And he said, I love this, we're going to go with it. And it just took off. 27 million albums sold. Uh, I remember when the album, the night before the album came out, I said to my dear friend uh, Richard Perry, who's a wonderful producer, I said, I'm a rock and roll traitor, Richard. We're not going to get away with this. My fans are not going to accept it. And I don't know if my hard fans, hardcore fans, purchased the albums. But, you know, it went into a lot of households. It really did. And you had great success with Have I Ever Told You Lately That I Love You? Yeah. That's a Van Morrison song. It's a lovely song. What made you decide to record it? Oh, I suppose it's the romance in me, Dan. You know, it's it's a terribly romantic song. I love it. It's uh, And it's a crowd pleaser. What would you say is your all-time crowd pleaser? Oh, well, there's quite a few, Dan. Uh, really we mentioned tough to them. choose. Really tough to we, choose. Uh, I enjoy, let me say, I never get tired of singing these songs. So, you know, do you think I'm sexy, Maggie May? Hot legs, tonight's the night. You wear it well. I get a thrill out of singing them all. I love them. All They're right. my children, you know, that's something I gave birth to. I wrote them, and they, they come out, and then they're out there in the public domain, and whether they're going to be a success or not. So they're, they're always going to be my kids. Rod, thank you very much. Yeah, cheers, Dan. That was great. Thanks. And that's it for this edition of The Big Interview. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. another great episode of The Big Interview with Dan Rather. We hope you've enjoyed this journey into the life and music of our special guest as much as we have. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'd also appreciate it if you would leave us a review and maybe even share the show with a fellow music lover. 
And to stay up to date with all things related to the show, you can follow us on social media, where we share behind the scenes tidbits, previews, and so much more. Until next time, keep the music playing.